Hi, this is Laura. And this is Nikki with the Stardust Society, inspiring you to stop getting in your own way and start building an art biz and life that you love. We are artists who believe strongly in the power of community, accountability, following your intuition, taking small, actionable steps, and breaking down the barriers of fear and procrastination that keep you stuck. Follow along with us on our creative business journey as we encourage you on yours. So Nikki, what are we talking about today? Laura, today we're talking about something that you have way more experience with than I do, teaching live art workshops. Yeah, I've um, I've been teaching live monthly classes for around 11 or 12 years now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time. Uh, mostly they're Copic marker coloring workshops and some fiber art sewing and watercolor classes kind of mixed in as well. Well, I started teaching arts and crafts at summer camp, probably when you were in diapers. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was learning with my training wheels at that point. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> um, and I've taught other things here and there, but I haven't made it as much of my current practice as you have. Well, I think teaching is a great way to diversify your income as an artist. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our listeners are probably curious about how to get started with something like that. Okay, so how did you get started with your first class? Well, 11 or 12 years ago, I had taken my Copic certification class in Las Vegas when I was at the CHA convention, which it was called the Craft and Hobby Association. And I wasn't actually planning on teaching, but I knew I wanted to have that ability. So I went ahead and took the class. It was the first and only Copic class really I've ever taken. I mm -hmm. think maybe I've taken one other online class in my life. And while I was there, you know, I enjoyed it. I learned lots of great techniques, went home, kind of went, okay, well, maybe someday I'll do something with this. Right. So back about 10 or 11 years ago, there were a lot of little independent craft stores. And an owner of one of the craft stores went onto the Copic website for certified Copic instructors. And she found my name and saw that I was in Dallas. So she reached out to me and said, hey, would you be interested in teaching classes at my shop? Awesome. And so it was kind of cool and at the same time, a little bit terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> the first time always is. It is. You're like, ah, who am I to teach? And, you know, oh, I just... we're talking about teaching. <laughs> OK, lots of things are terrifying. But... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, who am I to to teach? I just color the way that I color and enjoy it. But, you know, teaching somebody else to do that, it, there was a little bit of imposter syndrome happening. So I said, okay, I might as well get out of my comfort zone a little bit and give mm -hmm. it a try. They actually had another teacher teaching there at the same time, and they were having us teach every other month. And then um, after a couple of months, that teacher actually decided not to teach anymore, and I took those classes on. So that's how I got started, and it was in a shop, which was really great because all the supplies you need are kind of there, and you have a bit of a built-in audience because they already have some some folks that shop there regularly. Right. Uh, so that was sort of how I got started. And that store sadly shut down a couple of years later, like many of the indie craft stores around town. But um, I was able to find another location that was only like a block away um, that I was able to bring my students over to and teach oh, live nice. workshops there. So nice. it worked out really well. How about you, Nikki? When was the first time you ever taught? Well... Okay, so like I said, I taught arts and crafts at summer camp, but that's a completely different thing because that's <laughs> little kids and you can pretty much do anything with them. Right. Um, 
And then when I was in grad school, I did a little bit of student teaching, but that was more just assisting an instructor and, you know, for an entire semester, it's a completely different thing. But the first time Mm -hmm. I did an actual workshop back in episode 22, we interviewed Mm -hmm. my friend, Kristen Williams of Ephemera Paducah, who has a workshop space. Mm -hmm. And I had talked to her briefly about teaching and a couple of different things that I could teach, but we didn't have anything planned. So maybe eight or nine years ago, I happened to be at an encaustic conference in Santa Fe Mm -hmm. and I um, got a call from Kristen who said, help, (laughs) you you know, this encaustic workshop that you've signed up to take with this instructor Uh that was supposed to come teach this workshop. Well, she had a death in the family and had to cancel. And I have a lot of people that have signed up. And so instead of taking this workshop, can you teach it? (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I had been doing encaustic for probably 10 years at that point already, but um, but I had never taught it. And I said, um, okay. (laughs) And I was terrified, (laughs) of course. Um, I knew how to do everything, but I didn't know. There's a lot, a lot of different technique and techniques and safety considerations involved. Mm -hmm. But since I happened to be at this conference with all these instructors, um, one of the instructors from RNF paint, um, happened to be there and said, I'll help you out. And she gave me her outline and gave me some tips. And I was like, okay, I can do this. So it was, I think it was just a week or two after I got back from that conference that I taught my first encaustic workshop at Ephemera Paducah and Mm -hmm. I loved it. Yeah. It wasn't nearly as terrifying as you thought it would be probably by the end of it. No, almost everything, the anticipation is what's scary. Doing the thing is really not that bad. It's the anticipation of it, you know? I keep telling myself that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's keep telling each other, right? (laughs) Okay, so teaching is, as I mentioned, a great way to diversify your income. And some people might be interested in doing that. But I think the question comes down to how do you even start doing something like that? So what are the considerations and the things you need to think about in order to be able to host a successful workshop or class? It's one thing when somebody reaches out to you and says, can you come teach in my space and I'll help you put everything together? But if you don't have that opportunity, just reach out and grab you. How do you even get started? Right. And I think the first thing to think about is what venue, where are you going to teach? Right. There's a lot of different venues and I can give some of my personal experience. So as I mentioned, I started off in a craft store. Mm -hmm. And what was great about that was the supplies were on the shelf. If I forgot to bring some supplies with me that I was going to use for a project, I could basically go out into the store and grab it off the Mm -hmm. shelf. Right. Which made things a heck of a lot easier than having to remember it all myself. Um, There are lots of different types of stores that you can teach in as well. So there's art shops, there's craft shops, there's chain stores like Michael's Um, Mm -hmm. here in the U.S. You can go to a Michael's and I think they have rooms that could probably fit up to six to eight people in them. Um, So they have all different types of classes that you can either become a teacher with Michael's or you can rent out the room for a certain amount per hour and teach your own classes there. There are even really trendy shops in your hometown, perhaps, that have event rooms. So, for example, in Dallas, we have this amazing store called Flea Style, and it's down in Deep Ellum in Dallas. And they have this gorgeous room where you can 
basically rent the room and teach classes or work with them to help publicize a class and then they take a percentage of your fee. And that place is where I actually took a class from Peggy Dean when she was in town. She mm-hmm. she did a watercolor class there. So, um, so there are options like that with stores. Now, outside of stores, you can also look at other places. So you mentioned, Nikki, Ephemera Paducah, right? Right. So what you were talking about is like a bigger store that has a small workshop space. And Ephemera mm-hmm. Paducah is the opposite. It's a larger workshop space with a small store attached. And Mm -hmm. if you're fortunate enough to have one of those in your town, you might partner with the person who owns it. Like I partnered with Kristen and then she helps set everything up and she manages the Mm -hmm. she manages the booking and takes the payments and everything like that. Right. When I left the store, the next place that I went was actually a community arts center. Like I mentioned, it was like a block away. Mm hmm. And it's a fabulous space because it's dedicated to art. So it's got a bathroom. It's got a sink where you can you can have a, a messy cleanup process. Right. Um, they have tons of tables and chairs. They have they have a small gallery and a large gallery room where you can teach in. There's even a mirror on the ceiling in one of the rooms um, to demo with. So it's sort of made to be this community arts space. Now, the problem with that is that you are responsible for remembering to bring all the stuff you need right, with you. <laughs> right. So you can't just walk in and say, oh, I forgot, you know, glue or whatever it is right. that you needed to bring with you that day. Um, everything is going to be something you have to think about first and prep for. So it's fabulous to have these spaces when they're available, but that is just something to keep in mind. Right. But the good news with that is um, you live in a big city. I live in a minuscule city, but mm-hmm. we also have um, a nonprofit art center, the Yeiser mm-hmm. Art Center that is available, that, you know, is always interested in offering workshops and is willing to work with you to put on workshops. So pretty much anywhere you live, you can find something along those lines. Yeah. And another thing I'd mentioned about the Irving Arts Center, and they something similar probably exists with yours, they offer some free classes where they basically offer a stipend to teachers to Mm -hmm. come in and then teach, let's say, four Thursday night classes in a row on a topic, let's say drawing. Yes. And so that's also a way where you can dabble and dip your toe in the water of teaching, but have it be a little bit more, you know, structured and, and have the center sort of manage the payment and things like that. Right, right. And then another option, if you're lucky enough to have a space that's large enough, you can teach in your own studio. Oh, I'm so jealous of people who can do that. Well, I know <laughs> that your studio consists of this little part of your guest bedroom and your couch and no, coffee my table. Stu- <laughs> my, I'm going to correct you there. My studio is my entire condo and then there's a bed to sleep in. Oh, right, 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 okay. right. Yeah, you right. had it backwards. Okay, sorry. But <laughs> my house is half studio and half living space. And it was mm-hmm. built that way. It's commercial and residential. So I'm fortunate enough to have 850 square feet of studio space. Amazing. Yeah. So um, so I have a couple of times done small workshops in my space. It's still pretty crowded with all of the books and art supplies that we've admitted to everybody that we <laughs> <laughs> have way too many of. And mine are not nearly as organized as yours. Um <laughs> <laughs> I actually have somebody coming in this week helping me organize stuff. It's been great. Oh, that would be a great episode to talk about, you know, another oh, time. Let's. Organizing anyway, our art spaces. Yeah, yeah. Just as soon as I figure out how to do it. <laughs> but I have enough space that I can do a small workshop here. So I've had up to six people at a time mm-hmm. 
in my space. And I've only done this a couple times, but it's fantastic because then you don't have to worry about, do I have all my supplies? You don't have to pack them up and lug them somewhere. Everything is right here. Yeah. You know, I love that. And that's actually why I love the fact that I transitioned to Zoom this past year Mm -hmm. because there, you don't have to lug all your supplies. Everything's there. You can wake up, be in your your bunny slippers. Nobody cares. <laughs> your whole um, place ha- could be an entire mess except your desk. <laughs> yes, except whatever is in like your work the, table. the camera, yeah. Yeah. The, the camera angle. But the thing, though, that I miss is just having that camaraderie of having people in the room with you right. and just that creative energy that you get of feeding off of each other in the same space. I definitely miss that. However, yeah. um, there's some really great things about being on Zoom. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of those things in a minute. But right. another place where you can teach is in a local library. I think mm-hmm. you have experience with that, right, Nikki? Um, I do. I do. I was asked by the local art guild to come do. It was more of a demo than a full class, but same kind of concept. Um, They have a room that people can use for this kind of thing. And um, I just brought all my materials over there and did a demo there. But that's a little sketchy because you have to be really, really careful in a space like that because it's not a dedicated Mm -hmm. art space. It had carpeted floors. And so you have to be extra, extra careful. Mm -hmm. And bringing all your stuff to a space like that for just a brief little course is kind of a hassle. (laughs) It can be a hassle. I actually used to be the vice president of the Polymer Clay Guild in Dallas. And I used to be responsible for setting up all the workshops. And we did Mm -hmm. use a library for that. But there was a point in time where we had to like blanket the floor with plastic. And like, there's all these requirements that come with it that sometimes make it almost not worth it. So there are definitely considerations to have. It was definitely a lot easier when I did another one that was just a drawing workshop. So you didn't have to worry about being that messy. Right. Which also brings me to another place that I did a couple of drawing workshops, which is um, a local brewery in town, Dry Ground. Nice. Yeah. Dry Ground Brewery. And I did kind of a drink and draw event. So that I'd like to see the result of that workshop. That would be really interesting. (laughs) It was really fun. It was really fun. I mean, you're not going to do that's more of an entertainment kind of event than a serious art lesson. Yes. I think for my 35th birthday, I had a party at one of those wine and paint places. Uh Uh-huh. It was really interesting to see what was on everyone's canvas (laughs) at the end of the night. There were like wild coyotes coming out of volcanoes and it was supposed to be like an Italian sunset scene. So nice. Nice. I love it. All right. So those are some examples of different venues that you can consider for teaching. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the other considerations. First of all, if you're going to set up a workshop and you've now picked out your venue, how do you teach so that people can actually learn and see what you're doing? That's a tough one because it's different for every kind of venue, you know, Mm -hmm. whether you have just a small table to work on or a big space where you can walk around. What are some of the things that you've done in the different spaces you've been in? Well, I mentioned the art center had a mirror suspended from the ceiling, so Mm -hmm. you could actually demo that way. But to be honest, depending on the angle you're at, it's still hard to see. Right. Now, I'm fortunate that a lot of what I've taught in the past has been coloring with Copic markers. So we would take a specific image and Mm -hmm. color that image together. And so I would just blow it up really large, like maybe two to three times its normal size. Mm -hmm. And I would put it on a clipboard 
And then I'd walk around the room and demonstrate the techniques at each table because okay. maybe I had, let's say, 20 people in the class. So that's 10 tables at two per table. Right. And as I was going through a specific technique, I would show everybody what that technique was at their table. So they didn't have to come crowd around a table and like try to see what I was doing. Right. But that only works with certain types of techniques. So some of the workshops mm-hmm. that I've taught and also taken you can't really do like you can't really do that with encaustic, which requires a heated palette, and right. you know you've got a propane torch or a <laughs> heat gun or even jewelry where you're soldering. You need right. more of a fixed space, so you've got to really consider how you're going to demonstrate that. Is everybody going to crowd around the table? And with the pandemic, honestly, that that those days may be over. I don't know. It's right. it's harder to be crowded around a table looking at things. I know you can get some setups where there's basically um, you have a document camera that then has a projector or you can Mm -hmm. even set up your camera to like a mobile projector. They make those little ones that can stick in your pocket even. Mm -hmm. And you can project that onto a wall and then at least people could see what you're doing from wherever they are in the room. Yeah, that's super helpful. So something like that could be useful. Personally, I haven't had to use that. And when I've done watercolor classes in the past, I have had people just come and hover around the table and Mm -hmm. watch and maybe come in two different groups Mm -hmm. so that it's not too many people at once. But it is definitely a consideration. And that's another reason I love Zoom, because with Zoom, I can literally zoom zoom in (laughs) (laughs) on Zoom. I can zoom in to like an inch from my workspace and people can see exactly what I'm doing. And you can even record it. You know, you have that functionality so that people can watch it again later. So you just miss out on being in the same space and have that community aspect of of taking a workshop. Yeah, absolutely. So what else do you have to think about in the workshop space that you're setting up in? Okay, so you want to think about things like are there bathrooms available? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty important. <laughs> it's pretty important and also how many there are. So you don't want to necessarily have a big bio break, you know, Um, an hour into your class and there's only one bathroom, right? So sometimes, you know, you can just say at the beginning of class, if you need to, the bathroom's over here, just feel free to leave the room and you can catch them up when they get back or or whatever. Sinks are important, you know, having a decent sink that you can clean, especially if you have messy art supplies that you can clean in, or if there's going to be any food or anything like that, having a place to prep that or even a refrigerator to keep things cool is really nice. Mm -hmm. Um, Having Tables and chairs, right? You need to know how many tables and chairs can fit in the space and how many people do you plan on having at your workshop. So those are all things to consider. And will those be pre-set up for you? And do you have to cover them with um, with paper so that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not they're not all messed up? Right. Do you have to to cover them? And do you need to bring the tablecloths for that or are they provided? Oh, and floor coverings, too, sometimes depending on your space. Right. And I've found you can go to the dollar store and they have those plastic tablecloths for mm-hmm. literally 99 cents. Yep. So I've definitely bought those before for right. just a cheap, a cheap thing to throw down on the table for a messy class. Um, you also need to think sometimes, depending on the venue, some of them require insurance. Oh, right. Let's say you're having a two day workshop they consider an event and it's not a place that normally has art events. They might actually ask if you have some type of event insurance. Right. Like if you're going to a a craft store or a dedicated workshop space, most likely they're insured and you're you don't have to worry about it. But if it's someplace that you're just renting out and that doesn't usually do workshops, you probably need your own insurance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. So you also have to think about what's appropriate to do in specific spaces. So mm-hmm. like I said, I did um, a workshop in a brewery and I wouldn't do an encaustic workshop there. <laughs> <laughs> Not if there's propane torches involved. No, the last thing you want to <laughs> give to people who are drinking is open flames <laughs> and the kind of heat gun that can melt your face off. <laughs> Not a great idea. No, so... So for a place like that, I would stick to simple drawing classes where the the biggest weapon I'd give them is um, a pencil or a pen, right? Right. Even those could be dangerous. <laughs> yes. Don't forget, the pen is mightier than the sword, <laughs> but not the blowtorch. <laughs> so you also want to think about the cost of renting a space that could require surrendering a percentage of your sales to the store, or maybe there's a flat fee per hour. Right. Um, all of the venues will be set up differently. It's just something to consider when you're Mm -hmm. looking at spaces that you could teach in and also how those payments will be captured. So you'd mentioned previously when you're in a store, sometimes they will actually take care of that. Like Ephemera Paducah would take care of those payments for you if you were teaching there. However, in my instance, I have taught in the past in a community center. And now that I'm teaching online with Zoom, I collect all those payments myself. Mm -hmm. So when I first started out, I literally took PayPal uh, cash and checks and I took those in advance. People would mail me the checks in the mail. Cash? What's that? (laughs) Right? (laughs) So I would take those payments. It was all manual. I had an Excel sheet. I would track who paid me and who didn't. And when I sent them a PayPal invoice and whether or not it had been paid, and then I'd send out their supply list that they would need as each person paid. It was Mm -hmm. really a horrible manual labor-intensive process that made no sense. But now (laughs) what are you doing? Now I have a website with WooCommerce, which I'm very excited about. I set up this past year. (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo. So with my online shop, it's set up so that when somebody pays, they pay through either Stripe or PayPal online with a credit card um, or their PayPal account. And then they immediately receive a confirmation email that contains links to PDF documents. And those PDF documents include things like the Zoom information for the to join the call. It includes mm-hmm. the color suggestions and even step-by-step instructions for them so that they nice. can have that if they're unable to join the call or would like to have those visuals. All of that's available to them immediately. So I'm not tracking who got sent what. It's right. all there. Right. And then I'm able to even communicate with them because I have this really cool plugin that talks to MailChimp, who is my email provider. Mm -hmm. And so I can actually set up what they call a segment. And we'll get into all this stuff in another episode about about mailing lists. But um, I set up a segment for the people that signed up for that class or registered for that class. So then I'm able to email just them with reminders and things like that. So it's pretty cool. Awesome. And so that's a really good solution for someone like you who teaching is one small part of all the things you do. But if you are someone like Kristen Williams with Ephemera Paducah and Mm -hmm. teaching is your main thing Mm -hmm. and you really want a full, robust system to manage the whole process of marketing the classes, signing up for the classes, communicating with instructors, communicating with customers, students, and sending out reminders, taking deposits, and then Mm -hmm. full payments, then you can hire me, (laughs) like Kristen did, to, Uh um, to build this full, robust solution on your own website for Kristen. 
we're using a product called Event Espresso, which handles really every aspect of the event with a lot of backend customization that I had to do to make it fit the way she wants it to work. Mm -hmm. Um, That sounds pretty awesome. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can aspire to that down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Not there yet, but... Um, but yeah, for teaching live workshops, this was a solution I could come up with fairly quickly on my own with my limited tech skills. <laughs> and you did it beautifully and it's working really well for you. And it works. It works. And the other cool thing is that my classes are set up so that you can either receive a, a kit in the mail or you can do a completely virtual version of the class where you just watch the video and use your own supplies. Mm-hmm. So if you receive a kit in the mail, you can then even it'll generate like the shipping label out of my website, which is so cool. Isn't that lovely? (laughs) I used to type it all in manually in PayPal, multi-order shipping, which was kind of ridiculous. Okay, so let's get back to a little bit more about the facility itself. Okay. There are things that you need to think of when you're choosing a place to work and Mm -hmm. what you need to know about the facility itself. Yeah, so sometimes you need to know very particular things about the building. For example... Um, In the building that I used to teach in, I would go pick up a key a few days Mm -hmm. before the class, and then I would be responsible for that facility during that time. So I would be the one opening up the door (laughs) and managing the the property, ensuring that, you know, I took the trash out afterwards and cleaned up the place appropriately. And if I had to put tables or chairs away, like all those types of things or hire somebody else to do that for me, which I did for a while. Um, So those types of things you have to understand and even quirks of the building, like There was a building once that had a weird quirk with the fire alarm system. So the fire alarm would just periodically go off and they'd say, well, you punch this, this and this and it'll make it turn off. But you don't have to worry about it actually being a fire, which, you know, they probably should have figured that out. But (laughs) what was causing it? Yeah, especially if you're doing things like in caustic where there could be a fire. (laughs) Uh, I did learn how to do that. So if I didn't know how to do that, we would have been sitting with this fire alarm going off in the middle of class and that would be very frustrating. So right Right. Um, And another thing is something like power, right? Like how much power do you need for whatever you're doing in your class? So, for example, Nikki with encaustic, that takes a lot of power, right? Oh, yeah. You're using hot plates to melt your wax on. You're using heat guns and all kinds of other tools. Mm -hmm. And it can really overload a system. I mean, I've had that problem in not in my current studio, but in my previous studio, where I couldn't do a heat gun and my hot palette at the same time on the same breaker. (laughs) So you have to think about that kind of thing. But there's been places where I'm like, okay, so the power is not strong here. So we're going to use propane torches instead. But then it's also other things like if you're teaching a sewing or a quilting class, you know, Mm -hmm. how many sewing machines can you run? Or what other kind of power tools can you run if you're doing something like where you have to use drills and things? And strategically place them in different you know, walls in the room or or things like that, whatever's necessary to make sure you don't have issues that way. Also remember to bring extension cords. (laughs) I've been in situations before where I didn't have an extension cord when I needed it. So, And maybe fire extinguishers. (laughs) (laughs) That would be smart. (laughs) All right. So what else do you have to think about? Um, Like if you're doing an all day workshop and I know a lot of yours are just like maybe two hours, but if you're doing Mm -hmm. an all day workshop, You've got to think about food, food. (laughs) Yeah. Food, snacks, drinks. Um, What, you know, especially like the, the place that I've taught in the past, 
does not have a, a vending machine. They don't have, they have a water fountain and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no, they do have a refrigerator and a small kitchen. So you can tell people to bring their own snacks. And then I think providing people with recommendations nearby. If you're going to take a break for lunch and you're not going to cater lunch or right. have a restaurant deliver lunch, like right. you could always give them a menu in the morning and then organize a delivery with Uber Eats or something if you yeah. wanted to. And maybe um, think about having a few snacks and drinks on hand for in between you know, we talked about how Kristen oh, always yeah. has chocolate all the time oh, and, yeah. and her spa water. So just things to think about for wh- when somebody's stuck with you all day and you need to take care of them. Oh, I've seen the most beautiful ones. And I, I can't recall her name right now, but um, Flora Boley for her workshops hires mm-hmm. this amazing I call her like a food artist in oh, wow. out of Portland. And she creates these plates of fresh fruit and figs and nuts and things. And it's like the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen. It's a piece of art. You nice. don't want to actually nice. eat any of it because it's so pretty. But yeah, the presentation and having food available and um, as Kristen does, her spa waters. <laughs> right. You know, having having that is a nice touch. It's not a requirement. At least you need to be able to provide people with here's a map to you know, a couple places that are within mm-hmm. a mile from here yep. that we, that I can recommend and say are, are pretty darn good. Definitely. But I know when I go to a workshop, I tend to want to work through the lunch period when I'm like in the flow. I don't want right. to stop. I want to keep painting. I want to keep doing things. Right. So having lunch catered or brought in box lunch is really a great thing to do. I think it helps. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely helps. Yep. Now, one of the concerns people have is how do I price a workshop? Like mm-hmm. if I'm going to teach a live workshop, what in the heck do I charge for it? I think there's a lot of considerations for that. And the first is you need to understand what is the f- facility costing me? Am I am I renting the facility or, you know, or am I giving them a percentage of sales or whatever it is? You right. need to understand what is that. Another consideration is supplies. Are you providing mm-hmm. supplies for the students to use mm-hmm. or are you giving them a list and they bring their own or is it some combination of the two? And then do you work that into the cost of the workshop or sometimes people will have an extra materials cost? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a kit fee. I always love when there's a supply kit where somebody's put together a nice kit for you that you get to take home with you as a student. Yeah, I think it's fun. It's a nice touch. And I've even seen some people create their own little branded bags to put the supplies Mm -hmm. in if they're being extra special. Nice. I have not done that myself. Yet. But I think it's a cool touch. (laughs) Yet. Yet. Um, so you might be able to buy supplies in bulk, but I think you, you to cut your costs a little bit, but then you can end up with leftovers and too many. And right. sometimes it's hard to gauge how many students you're going to have in a workshop if you don't have like, you don't sell them out all the time and you have a capped number, right? Just make sure that you're buying supplies that you can use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is this is very true. So another thing to consider when it comes to this supply idea as well is when will you cut off your registration? If you're going to be providing some supplies, you do need to have at some point a cutoff date that says, you know, I'm not going to take registrations up to the night before if I have to go out and buy some extra supplies somewhere, right. you know, if you don't have enough. So what do you do? Well, I have two different options right now for most of my classes. So one is that you can download an illustration that I've made and color along in the class. Mm hmm. And then the second option is I can send you a kit that already has everything pre-printed and done for you. That kit, it's usually a greeting card kit that I've made uh-huh. and usually a couple of them. And you can get those in the mail. Now, if you're going to opt in for the kit, then I'm going to send that out now about 10 days before the class. Okay. Didn't used to have to do that, but with COVID and the mail system right, right. now, 
Um, slower than it ever used to be. It's so slow and mm-hmm. things get lost when you don't expect it. And some things show up one day later and somebody who lives a block away from that person gets theirs eight days later. And there's Crazy. no real rhyme or reason to it. Right. So I want to cut that off usually about 10 days before, but for the one that you can download and print out and follow along, I'll have that up to the day before. It doesn't matter because right. um, because they're going to get everything in email that they need and they can print it out and they can, you know, they're, they're responsible for that piece. Right. That's the way that I manage it. But mm-hmm. if it's a physical class, I would want to cut it off at a certain time in advance of that class so that I yeah. can get all my kits and my things together for it. So that was a little tangent on supplies. <laughs> Just a small one. Right, but Uh, it's important. It's relevant. When it comes to pricing, you want to think about how much time went into the planning and the design of your class. Is this something that took you an hour or did you spend days working on this and preparing for it? You need to think about that um, along with sort of looking at the marketplace and seeing what similar classes sell for. Right. I mean, do do some research online, check it out and see you, you're not going to price your class at, you know, $350 if they're comparable ones at 99 or vice right. versa. But you might realize that the very first time that you teach a class, you've done all this prep work and you really may not cover the cost of your time in the first class. But if it's mm-hmm. something you're going to continue to teach Mm -hmm. You can make that up in future classes. And it also depends on the live class itself. Is it a one hour class, a two hour class? Is it a whole day or a whole weekend? Right. Like depending on the length of your class, you would certainly want to adjust your price for that as well. Yep, definitely. If you're doing a live class like I do where you mail a kit in advance or have that option for people, you also want to consider your postage. So there's going to be postage related to that. So you want to make sure that you've captured that into your pricing. And um, if you also offer a replay, let's say you're capturing it on Zoom and you have a replay, then is that downloadable for people to keep forever? There's value in that, right? So you want to consider all of those different aspects that you can then market later in your class to say, look at all these things you're going to get if you take this class. And that should be able to add to that fee a little bit. And then consider increasing your fees over time as as your costs increase while you're developing new classes and your experience grows and your skills grow. Yeah, you want to consider increasing your fees, not just as your skills grow, but also just you know, inflation, it's normal, all prices increase. So we shouldn't feel guilty about having to increase our prices. The post office is increasing rates for shipping things. It used to be like $2. Now it's like $4 to send something. And that assumes it actually gets there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything goes up. Uh, Material costs go up. Your electricity goes up. Yeah, all of it goes up. So it's, I think it's natural to increase over time, just be transparent with people about increasing the fees. Um, and I, I think everybody usually is fine with it, especially when you found your peeps, right? Right. right. Um, and they, they understand the care and attention um, and love that you put into preparing for a class. And speaking of preparation, mm-hmm. let's talk about just some general tips about things to do to prepare when it's time to teach that class. Preparation is so huge. I mean, triple check your supplies list what you're purchasing, Mm -hmm. making sure you're purchasing in advance to allow all the time that you need to have it shipped to you. If you're demoing virtually, you want to set up all your supplies and your table space the day before 
And I would ensure that all your lights are functioning properly, that you have really good either natural light or I actually set up some LED table lamps. Make sure your cameras are working. Yeah, if your phone or your camera, whatever you're using is working and functioning properly. And then double and triple check your internet connection that you're not having any weird problems with it. Absolutely. Some days I in the morning, I just go reset my router just in case, <laughs> and just so it just doesn't drop in the middle of a class. Right. Um, so those are all things that are helpful. And I've had situations where the internet connection wasn't great. When I went over to Zoom to look at the cloud recording, it came across really horrible and grainy mm. and frozen. So I had to literally sit down and re-record everything from scratch myself and put it up on Vimeo as a separate oh video for people. Stuff happens, right? Yep. And you just work with it when it does. Yep. But being as prepared as you can is really helpful. Another thing is that I really like to do a little bit of surprise and delight. Okay. What do you do for that? <laughs> um, I, you know, I think it's important to underpromise and overdeliver. Absolutely. One of the ways to do that is to give people some little surprise or thing that they're not expecting that they can take away from your class. Mm -hmm. For in-person classes, what I started doing probably eight or nine years ago was having raffles in class, like little giveaways. Nice. I would bring a few giveaways. I started off in classes, maybe bringing two or three little giveaways to give people and they would put their name in a hat and I would pick it out throughout the mm -hmm. class. And then I started adding more giveaways to it so that pretty much I had enough for everybody to get something little. Right. And I would use raffle tickets instead of having everybody write their name down on a piece of paper <laughs> because that was so much easier. And I hadn't thought of that before. Uh -huh. So the raffles were really fun because when people get really serious, sometimes they're trying really hard to make something perfect or right or follow along. And there's that tension in the room. And you just want to cut that tension. Yeah, you just go giveaway time. Yay! <laughs> then you can pull it out and, and everybody gets excited because they're waiting for their number to be called. And and so what are you giving away? So I'm giving away things like just little craft supplies. I'm giving away stuff from my stash that I haven't used because people don't really care or even things that are lightly used, like a rubber stamp that might be really cool that's been lightly used. Um, I bring it all and people still think it's Christmas. They're very excited <laughs> because I feel that way, too, because I love getting little giveaways. Oh, even stickers, you know, or anything. Yeah. Anything fun. Yeah. I just love it. Dead things from my collection. Well, not that. But, <laughs> people, but people get to go home with a little something extra that wasn't part of the regular kit. Right. When I transitioned to Zoom, I wanted to keep doing that. I wanted to keep giving people a little bit of surprise and delight. Mm -hmm. What I try to do in every kit that gets mailed out, if somebody orders a kit, I put something inside of that kit that's special. It could be some little supply. It could be, like you said, a sticker or something. Um, what I've done the last couple of classes I, is I did some mini uh, watercolor paintings. So oh, wow. I had um, I had a whole class that was about vintage roses, coloring in vintage roses with uh -huh. Copic markers. And so then I actually did little watercolor roses. Nice. And they probably only took me a couple minutes each to do. And then I let them dry overnight and I did them on small pieces of paper I'd cut up. But it's a nice little extra surprise that they weren't expecting and something personal from you. Yeah, exactly. And it's flat and it's lightweight. Right. It's not going to cost me postage, right, to send right. that. So I think doing something a little extra and special makes a live event even more fun to participate in. So what else do we need to think about, Nikki? Um, well, think about the communication with people before the class, because they may have signed up for it a month or two ago. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, they forgot where the supply list was or 
Mm-hmm. You know, they might forget the date. They might forget the class. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. What do you do for your classes once people have signed up when it's getting closer to time? Um, well, first of all, you do want to make sure that you open up the sign up for your class well in advance. Don't try to open up sign up for a class a week before the class starts. What's um, your typical timeline for that? Mine is usually a month before. Okay. So I try to have the project ready within a week of my last class. So probably three to four weeks before the class. Well, and that's great for your online classes. But if you are in a workshop space and it's something that a person has to plan to take time out of their schedule, especially if they're traveling. Months. I would then, say months yeah, in advance. Then you want to you announce the classes as far in advance as possible and open up registration Way yeah, especially if it's a larger chunk of change, like if it's right. a more expensive class, right. people are also budgeting for that. So you want to be able to give them several months leeway time. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is over communicate. You basically want to communicate with people at the point that they purchase. And then maybe three weeks ahead, you would want to remind them of the supply list you know, right. and the things that they should order to make sure that they have time to order those things and right. get them in, in time. Um, a week before, you would want to send them reminders and even up to the night before or the morning of just to make sure that they don't forget because life gets in the way sometimes. And absolutely, people forget. Um, it's happened, definitely happened with students of mine before where they like, oh my gosh, I forgot we were having this class, mm-hmm. which is another thing to consider. And that is whether or not you're going to provide refunds to people. Are your classes refundable or not? Oh, Which I and? think is an interesting topic. And are yours? My classes personally are are not refundable unless there's a special circumstance. And I know, for example, with COVID, you know, when COVID right. happened and I had to cancel classes, I'm certainly not going to charge somebody for that. Right. If they, if they don't want to purchase a kit or do a class online and, and they wanted to do the in-person one, I'm not going to say, no, you, you gave me this money and it's not refundable. But in general, I don't refund. And the reason I do that, um, there's a couple reasons I do that. So one is that a large part of the work in my classes is the step-by-step instructions of the project. It's choosing the right colors and all of that information comes to people after they register. They're going to get everything they need to complete that project the moment they purchase it. Right. So they've already gotten quite a lot of benefit before the class even happens. Correct. I'm basically giving the class away at that point. Um, And the other thing is people, when people have skin in the game, um, they will show up. I right. think you'll notice that if you offer a free class, see how many people show up for the free class. Oh, yeah. I sign up for all kinds of free things that I don't go to. <laughs> right. But if I pay for it, I'm a lot more likely to. But now I know that it's different if it's a physical space and a more expensive course. I know a lot of people will do, you know, you can get a full refund minus a small deposit if it's more than 30 days in advance. And the closer it gets, the lower your amount of refund will be. And also you can have a policy that says if you find somebody to replace you, right. then then there's no, right. there's no cost to you. So there's no right way or wrong way to do it. It's the important thing is set your policy and make sure that people know what your policy is. So that when they've signed up for your class, they're agreeing to that policy. And the bottom of both on my my actual page where people purchase the class, as well as at the bottom of every registration email, has a list of class policies. So there is absolutely no way people will know that that wasn't a policy unless, of course, they didn't read it. But that is helpful for you to be able to have that to point people to if they're saying, oh, I didn't realize this. You can show them where that was definitely a part of it. Right. 
But of course, if you have to cancel the class for any reason, that's your own issue, not theirs, then of course you'll refund them. Absolutely. Yes. If you cancel the class, you refund someone. Mm -hmm. But if you didn't cancel and somebody just missed, um, if you do have a virtual class like a Zoom one and you recorded that, you can absolutely point them to the video and say, hey, you didn't miss out. Here it is. Um, I'm going right. to send the the link after the class. And I usually put a password protection on the video and mm-hmm. provide the cloud recording link. And just a thing for people to to know that's interesting is that Zoom has two different recording capabilities. You can either record to the cloud or you can record locally to the hard drive of your computer. Okay. If you do the computer, you can actually record HD quality, which is oh, nice, nice if you you know, want to sell that that um, replay later to people, you want something that's pretty high quality. If you're doing cloud recording, it's super convenient because it basically processes in the background and five minutes after your class is done, you can send people a link to it. But it's always going to be SD quality for now. Okay. Um, if you have more than two people on the line, they downgrade the quality. Um, they don't want it to take up too much bandwidth on their hmm. servers. So it's going to be a little grainy and you just have to be aware that it's not going to be super great quality. Okay, so sounds like recording locally is the way to go if you can. If you can figure it out. I haven't figured out how to do it with a document camera, like with my phone as the document camera. Um, so I've just been using cloud recording because it, right. it works and and um, people don't expect to have anything super fancy when they're also getting the live class. But if I were to resell it, I would definitely want it to be HD quality. Okay. All right. So if you've recorded the class, you can send a follow up email. Even if it was a live class, you can always send a follow up email to your students and just thank them for coming to the class. Maybe um, remind them of some products that you have for sale as well or a future class that you might be offering um, just to sort of continue the conversation with that group of students especially if it's it's a group that you wouldn't see all the time. Like my classes very frequently are the same people um, or, you know, people who we've we've created community over time. But I know some of the classes you teach, Nikki, you might only um, because of the nature of the class, you might only see those people once. Right. Well, yeah, because the ones that you do are mostly project based. So you can Mm -hmm. always have a new project with similar techniques. Whereas what I'm teaching is more technique based. So you're probably only going to take the intro class one time. Mm -hmm. But if I want to keep in touch with them, I may schedule another intermediate class or I may not. I may just want to get them on my list so that I can send them updates about other things that I'm doing. So you definitely want to follow up with another email after the class to Mm -hmm. inform them about what else is going on. And if you have a Facebook group, you can ask them to join that. Mm-hmm. You can always poll your students either through email or the Facebook group. Ask their opinion about things. Ask them what they want to learn. You can't just assume right. what they want to learn, but just find out what is it that they're interested in. You can even do a Google survey through Google Forms, which is what I use. Um, and that's really helpful to get feedback from people. You want to encourage people to share their creative work with others and the things that they've made in your class on social media. But... But you want to make sure that you're encouraging them to share the work that they've done, but let people know that this is something that I created in Laura's Copic marker class, not that they're passing off your drawing that they've colored as their own original work, right? Correct. You do want to make sure that they give you credit and, you know, you put your copyright on the top of any of the digital files that you put out there and let them know that those are for them and you would love for them to share the work they've produced with their friends. But if a friend walks up and says, oh, that's so cool. I see the instructions. Can I have those? You know, you want them to then refer 
those people to you and say, oh, well, I'm a part of this COVID club. And if you'd love to join it, here's the information on the website, because that would be really great for you to do that, but not to just pass off your intellectual property rights to somebody else. And a great thing to do when you're teaching a class is to bring work of your own to sell in that class. In-person classes Mm. are a great place to sell your work. Absolutely. I know that I have taken workshops at um, at Ephemera Paducah again, and mm-hmm. I took some jewelry classes from Susan Lenart Kasmer and have bought several pieces of her beautiful jewelry. Um, mm-hmm. I bought a gorgeous mixed media piece from Kate Thompson when I took a workshop from her. And I've bought pieces from both Tracy Verdugo and Nancy Medina in their painting workshop. So mm-hmm. I can attest to it's a great place to purchase work. You can even offer a tiny discount, like 10% off for anybody who buys your work in that particular workshop. And some people will even sell their demo pieces mm-hmm. at a great discount because it's something that they've just created on the spot. So what are our key takeaways, Nikki? Because all of this can seem really overwhelming. Well, teaching live workshops can be a great way to supplement your income and to grow a creative community, but there's a lot of things you need to take into consideration and you really need to figure out what the best way to do it is for you. Well, to make things easier for you, we've created a special PDF checklist with info on all the things you'll want to take into account when planning and implementing your live workshop. And once you have figured out what works best for you, it gets a lot easier because you can basically just repeat your process. So now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you in our Facebook group or on Instagram at Stardust Society about your own experiences with workshops and classes, either as a teacher or a student. Do you have any great advice to share from classes that you've either taught or taken? Is there anything we missed from either of these perspectives? To view today's show notes and download your copy of the Teaching Live PDF Checklist, go to StardustSociety.com slash Teaching Live. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.